Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, Father, give us, give us humility that we desperately need by your grace. But then, Father, give us the confidence that comes from your lordship. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, welcome this morning. We're going to begin a short series that we do in the fall uh, where we get to talk about some different pieces of, of the church, specifically thinking about uh, not just the church broadly, but our church and God's call on our church and the vision we have for our church and the direction that the elders and myself are headed uh, sometimes it's to say where we're headed, and sometimes it's to say where we've been, or to just reaffirm things that, that we believe to be true and, uh, and important for us to be reminded of each year. And so we do this in the fall, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, about five or six weeks of, of uh, taking a different emphasis in different places as it concerns the church. So with that, this week and, and then the next four weeks we're going to talk about, I'm going to introduce a new word, uh, what we're going to call our distinctives. And that's where we'll go the next four weeks, but this is kind of an intro into that series. And then the next four weeks talking about distinctives will be kind of some things, four things, uh, broadly speaking, that we believe as a church, that our elders believe, that we want to kind of draw out and, and say these are things that in this moment make us distinct, that set us apart, that are important for us to kind of put a spotlight on. For now, though, today we're going to talk about Christ the Lord from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 19 and 20. There's great confusion in our day as to who is Lord over what? Our world is suppressing the truth of who is Lord over things like gender, marriage, government legislation, the self, especially the psychological self, who's Lord over truth and authority and so on. There is much confusion. You could say in a phrase, our world has a lordship problem. But it's not just our world that's suppressing the truth 
as it relates to lordship, the church, broadly speaking, in many ways has capitulated to much of the insanity of our world as well. But not just the church at large. This is not just a lordship problem in a general sense, but many of us, indeed all of us, have a lordship problem. Each of us, every single day, struggle with suppressing the truth concerning who really is Lord. Let me give you some examples. You know that unfortunate conversation that you had with your spouse the other day where you suppressed the truth that Jesus was Lord in that moment, and so you acted wrongly? You said wrong things? You were suppressing the reality that Jesus is Lord. Or the other day when your world was turned upside down, circumstances not good, And you suppress the truth that even still in that moment, Jesus was Lord. And so you fretted with anxiousness and worry about tomorrow when Jesus as Lord says, don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough concerns of its own. Or on Friday as you left work thinking, oh, thank God, I get to do what I want to do now. Suppressing the truth that Christ is also Lord over your Friday night and your Saturday and all day Sunday. Or maybe it's the string of disappointments or frustrations in your life because you keep writing new laws and standards for the people around you to keep because you forget that Jesus is Lord over your expectations of others as well. You see, it's not just the world that has a lordship problem, but we, God's people, have a lordship problem. Like Adam and Eve, we trust ourselves to act as Lord more than we oftentimes trust Christ, the Lord. But Paul tells us here in Colossians that Christ is preeminent and Christ is the Lord. Christ is preeminent and Christ is the Lord. Now, if you're not careful, this phrase, Christ the Lord, or Christ is the Lord, or Christ is preeminent, if you've spent any amount of time in church, it'll be really easy for you to hear that phrase, put your mind and your heart on autopilot, and just cruise through the next 60 or 70 or however many minutes it takes us to get through here. Christ is preeminent. Christ is the Lord. Here's what preeminence means if you've not done your homework coming into this morning. It means the idea of surpassing all others. Very distinguished and set apart. To put a proper noun in with the pronoun here, Jesus is far above the rest. To put the, like, what, how that practically looks or what is natural outworking of that is that everything... Everything serves the purpose of exalting the name of Jesus. He is preeminent. That means the good, the bad, and the ugly. The preeminence of Christ, we have to understand, is at the heart of God's eternal plan. The preeminence of Christ is at the heart of God's eternal plan, meaning 
It's at the heart of everything he has done, everything he's currently doing, and everything he will do for all of eternity. At the heart of that is that Jesus would be distinguished and set apart, surpassing all others. Hebrews 10.13 says, Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The his is referring to Jesus. All enemies, a footstool to his feet. Ephesians 1.22, similar language. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. See, there's a picture emerging Particularly, if you go back and read like that, that whole chapter of Ephesians 1, there's a picture emerging that, that Jesus is more glorious, more weighty, more important, more worth treasuring than absolutely everything and everyone else. Ephesians is painting this picture that Jesus is the summary. He's the climactic chapter of history's grand book. He's the center of it all. All of the attention on him. If you could imagine all of life, particularly in Ephesians, as he's talking about this climactic moment where Christ emerges as it all, it's like the, the, all of the events of history and there being a string through each event in history's time and that string is just pulled and then emerges Christ as the preeminent one. Listen, not you, not me, not our kids, not the poor, not the rich, not exalting women or men, and not the government. No one and no thing but Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the preeminent one and only one. He does not share it with anyone or anything else whatsoever. There is not a close second. Remember, second place is just the first loser anyways. And that's where history is marching toward. Now, if we're not careful, you will separate in this passage three important realities. And we'll spend the next few moments on these three important realities. Our tendency is to think, okay, great, great, Jesus is awesome. I got that, check. Now, let me go kind of do my life as long as I return and give Jesus a head nod every once in a while. You know, let's pray before we eat, because you know Jesus is important, but the rest of dinner can be about me or about the kids or about something else. Or, you know, let's make sure we go to church, but the rest of the week, you know, I just can... As long as I give a nod to Jesus every once in a while, we're good. But these three realities are absolutely inseparable. And those three is this. Jesus' preeminence, Jesus' responsibility, and Jesus' authority. His preeminence, His responsibility, and His authority. Those three are inseparably tied together in this passage. Listen, lordship, as we've already mentioned, the term, but lordship involves responsibility and authority. 
Responsibility, the idea of like taking responsibility for a thing, for a situation, for a person, taking responsibility, I'm taking ownership of it, meaning if something goes wrong, I'm going to work to fix it. If something went wrong, I take ownership for it. But then along with responsibility, this is the way God's kingdom works, is must come the the, uh, commensurate or an equal amount of authority to do something about the responsibility. So when we say lordship, we need to think responsibility and authority. That's crucial. Now, this is a problem in our culture, a problem in the world, and a problem in many of our lives, mine as well. Everyone wants to be the most important. Everyone wants to be in authority, but no one wants responsibility. No one wants responsibility. No one wants to say, it's my problem to fix, or it was my failure to lead, and I'm going to do something about it. The liberals want to put the responsibility on the conservatives. Conservatives want to put the responsibility on the liberals. The wife wants to blame the husband. The husband wants to blame the wife. The kids like to blame the parents. The parents like to blame the kids. But with lordship, as we see with Jesus, there are three parts. His preeminence, his responsibility, and his authority. Indeed, the the passage presents these, that they cannot be separated in order for this first among or the preeminent one, Jesus, also has to have authority over and righteously exercise that authority with responsibility. But again, we all want glory, Preeminence without any of the responsibility. We want to exercise authority how we want to without any responsibility. But listen to the passage in verse 18, second part. He says, he is the beginning, that's Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, firstborn is used 130 times, And it's always used to indicate a a measure of power over or supremely over. So what Paul is saying at this point with Jesus is that he is in authority over. So that, or that, so that this, this part that's tied to it, that he would be preeminent. These both pieces, supremely over. Is this authority and power over, and his preeminence. These things are tied together. His authority and responsibility is inextricably tied to his preeminence. To put it another way, Jesus' exaltation cannot be separated from his lordship. And to put it in a very personal way, Jesus will not be exalted by us in this church or by you in your life or family unless you recognize his lordship. Let me put it another way. You don't really treasure Jesus and love him unless you know him, love him, and obey him as Lord. These two things don't go together. You don't treasure him as preeminent unless you submit to him as Lord. So don't kid yourself. 
Don't live a lie. If he is not Lord, then he is also not your treasure. They are tied together, Paul shows us. Christ the Lord is now and will be the supremely exalted one. The one who is the the purpose of it all. The one who will be put forth as the grand, glorious, most exalted one. Christ the Lord is supremely important to God's eternal plan. Again, this is where all of history is headed. All of it. Not just the church, but all of history. It says every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's why the elders of refuge last March decided to change the name by which we refer to ourselves here as this fellowship of believers. Our new name as a church is Christ the Lord Church. Christ the Lord Church. Amen. Our vision, our mission, all those things headed the same direction. We exist for the glory of God by treasuring Christ, loving His church, giving witness to His gospel. How are we going to do that? How are we going to be a people that recognize the glory, or in other words, another way to say it, the, the preeminence of Christ? It's by helping people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all. Now let's talk about what Lord means. It means ruler, owner, master, or the term we use in our family, boss. He is owner. Jesus is owner, ruler, master over all the spheres and dimensions of the entire cosmos. Every last molecule and its movement, or lack thereof, is under His Lordship. That's what this passage is getting us into. The Lordship of Jesus. A theologian named Abraham Kuyper said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! It is mine. Every last inch is mine. Even as we think about our experience in this world, Kuiper talks about there being spheres of sovereignty. You have the self as a sphere of sovereignty. Like you have to exercise, there's authority in that that's appropriate for the self. Then the household, the church, and the magistrate or the government. Each of those is a sphere of authority, and they have limits as to their authority. But Christ is Lord over all of them, and He's the one who sets the boundaries of each of those spheres. Now listen, Christ, as we think about Christ the Lord, Christ isn't just our Lord. He is the Lord. 
and that's crucial. He is your Lord and my Lord, whether we recognize it or not. He is the Lord of the government, whether they recognize it or not. He is the Lord over your household, whether you recognize it or not. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. So much richness in that. But for right now, do you see it again? Jesus has been exalted by God the Father, and he has a name that is above every name. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. What? That Jesus is Lord. Now, in order for God to make every knee bow under the authority of Jesus means he has the ability and authority to do it now if he should choose. He isn't just our Lord, as in Christ our Lord, church, but he is indeed Christ the Lord, as in the Lord over everything, whether recognized as such or not. Listen, by that name, we're making a statement first to ourselves. We're telling ourselves, whether I recognize it or not, he's Lord. Whether in this moment of chaos, I recognize that he is still Lord over it or not, does not change the fact. My experience does not change the objective reality of Jesus, the Lord, sitting on his throne, ruling over everything. But it's also a statement to our neighbors, to each other, to the city, to the government, to the nation, and beyond, that Christ is the Lord, whether you recognize it or not, and that we want to help people recognize the grace and mercy and sovereignty of our Lord. Again, our mission, helping people, helping them, not just proclaiming, but helping them know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord. I want to use a phrase that's not original to me. The phrase is this, all of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. To put it another way, and maybe a little more Uh, kind of teeth for our applicational moment is all of Christ is Lord over all of life. That's what that phrase is intending to communicate, is that it's all of Christ has something to say about all of life, because it is all His. And we really do mean all in both uses or both instances in that passage. So the first phrase is all of Christ the image of the invisible God, all of Christ. If you look at verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image. Let's talk about this for a moment. Christ is the image of the invisible God. To put it another way, He is the exact imprint of the character of His Father God. When you see Jesus, 
You see God. As one of my kids said during the uh, community group uh, kids lesson, he said, because he is God. Yes, this is true. The, the kids' Bible version says that Jesus is the exact likeness of God. He perfectly reflects the character and nature and actions of God. That Christ's lordship is tied to his imaging God. Not just part of God, but all of God. You see, Christ's lordship is representative. Christ's lordship is representative. We're going to talk about how Christ's lordship is productive here in a moment. But Christ's lordship is representative, terms that we used in a sermon last week. His lordship is representative. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that means that, he, that what he images is indivisibly tied to God's character and subsequent plans. Everything he does is tied. It's a representation of. Jesus didn't come to do his will, but the will of God. He represents his Father in all he does. His lordship is representative of his Father's rule. Listen, Jesus doesn't want to do anything but his Father's will. He carries it out precisely, exactly as God intends for him to carry it out. John 6, 38, Jesus speaking, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What a marvelous statement. I mean, to put this another way, all that God is, his glory and his gravitas, is represented in all that Christ is, his glory and his gravitas. Who he is and what he does. His glory and his gravitas. So this means, if you and I are to know God, our creator, our father, then we must know who Jesus is. And we must know all of who Jesus is and what he has done. We need to know all of Jesus, not just the portions that fit our preference or that our culture tends to gravitate towards, which brings us to my next point. Christ's lordship isn't always nice, but it's always righteous. Christ's lordship is not always nice as we would like to define it. More on this in a moment. John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1.1, 1, 1, if you go back and read that passage, it goes on actually to give more creational language, just like Paul does here in Colossians. But the point for our consideration is that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Namely, God's Holy Scripture, all of it. Not just the Gospels and not just portions of the Gospels. Show us the most complete picture of Jesus that God intends for us to have right now. Let me say that again. Not just the Gospels, not just portions of the Gospels, but the entire 
Bible paints for us a picture of who Jesus is and who he's imaging that God intends for us to understand here and now. All of it. You see, here's our problem. In our current world, even inside the church, gravitate towards only knowing a measure of who Jesus was. Conveniently, the soft, gentle, and quiet Jesus. They know the lamb before the slaughter who opened not his mouth. You know, the, the, the convenient one that kind of sits by and lets everybody else do what they want to do. Now, it's interestingly enough that those are wonderful characteristics, but they're also predominantly feminine characteristics. And in a highly feminized culture, it's notable that the only acceptable characteristics of Jesus are his softer ones. It's like Satan convinced Jesus' followers to all just jump in the cattle trailer on the way to the slaughter. Don't worry. It's the only righteous way for you to live. But that's not all of Christ. Indeed, that's not the predominant one we see throughout the Scriptures. There are times that the Lord is soft and gentle and quiet and let the kids come to me and so on and so forth. And there are times where we need to live this way as well. But the Bible as a whole gives a much fuller picture of Jesus. Listen, I'm not going to spend any time on the nicer side of Jesus because even pagans are well-educated on nice Jesus. But let's look at the other side. The other side that we tend to overlook of Jesus. The mean, if you will, or the not nice side of Jesus. Again, if we're talking about the lordship of Christ, all of Christ, we need all of him. Not just the ones that suit our fancies for the moment. Here's some examples. He, Jesus, and Peter get into an argument. This is from Mark 8. Go read it later. They're each rebuking the other. Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus calls Peter Satan and says, get behind me. Now, was Peter actually Satan? No. Jesus calls him Satan. That's not very nice. He's calling people names. Oh, my goodness. How dare you? Jesus... Another example, Mark 9, Jesus becomes exasperated with the crowd and his disciples. And he says these words, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? Jesus makes a general statement about a crowd of people. Oh, you can't do that. That's stereotyping Jesus. He says, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Jesus makes a generalization. He does so without an apology. And he makes a negative generalization at that. Mark 11, he curses a fig tree. Now, what did the fig tree ever do to you, Jesus, other than taste nasty? If you like figs, I'm sorry. He drives people out of the temple area. Mark 11. Notice, he drives them out with a whip, according to John 2.15. 
He overturned tables and physically intimidated people to prevent their passing through. He physically intimidated them. Sounds like a bully, Jesus. He made a whip and drove them out. Or how about Jesus' attitude towards authorities? It's hardly in our definition respectful. He calls Herod a fox. That was not a good term in that day, okay? Today we say, oh man, he's a fox. That's not what Jesus meant about Herod. <laughs> Luke 13. Or he scolds the scribes and Pharisees at length, mocking them as blind guides and hypocrites. Matthew 23. And then, he doesn't just do that, he practically curses them, saying, you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. Matthew 23 as well. We have the mean, or the not nice side of Jesus. So when we say that his rulership is representative It's an image of God, and we need to have the fullest picture we can see. Listen, it's all of Christ or it's none of Christ. Our problem, though, I think, is that we worship niceness. I didn't say kindness, niceness. We've confused love and niceness. What we want is a benevolent grandfather, God, who gives us candy and sugar and tells us that we're great and that we're okay. That's nice, but that's not loving. That's nice, but that's not kind. That's nice, but that's not the image of God. And it isn't representative of God's lordship. Paul tells us that Jesus is the exact image of his Father. So when we read those passages that I just read from Mark... It's like the the picture that C.S. Lewis paints with Aslan, that he's also dangerous. It doesn't fit into our nice, cultural, uh, preferential, and acceptable, and palatable moment, or in a palatable way to this moment. Jesus is the exact image. We should, if, if we're to know our heavenly Father, then we must know all of who Christ is. Why? Why? At least in part, just a quick couple reasons. A, so that we can recognize His Lordship when we see it. And two, so that we know how to represent it ourselves. Listen, Jesus wanted people to know His Father and His Father's holiness, His weightiness, His glory. And so he helped people to do so, to see it. He modeled it. He showed it. He talked about it. He imaged it. Later in the same book, book of Colossians chapter 3, Paul's going to say this in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So he says admonish. You know what admonish means? To warn or reprimand someone firmly. You know, in our house, we call it like dad's voice. Yeah, that's dad's voice, right? To warn or reprimand firmly. So Paul says to do this. It's not an option. In the same passage, 
Two verses earlier, he tells them to clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So which is it, Paul? Love and harmony or admonishment? You see, we think those two things can't remotely go together. That, that the, the kind and soft and gentle Jesus can't be the, the firm and reprimanding and even derogatory Jesus. Those can't go together. That can't be all of Christ. But Paul is saying there is a deeper unity and intimacy that he wants for those in Colossae and for us. And this unity, he's saying, will only happen as we more accurately represent and encourage the lordship of Jesus, as we accurately and represent all of Christ, which looks like compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, exhortation, rebuke, admonishment, journalizations, strong words, etc., So we want, we desperately need all of Christ. Listen, part of the reason why the church in our day is such a mess is because they have just wanted a portion of Christ. When they say we treasure Christ, they mean we treasure the part of Christ that we like most. We want all of Christ. We need all of Christ. If we're to be Christ the Lord Church, then we want all of Him, and we desperately need every image, that every parcel and piece of the image of God that He images for us to see. You see, we need all of Christ over all of life. We don't need just a portion of Christ over all of life. We need all of Christ for all of life. All of Christ is Lord over all of life. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. We're just going to break down this verse in the next few minutes. It's interesting here that the one thing that Paul chooses to zero in on out of, out of everything he could have, is these four words basically that, that say basically the same thing. Listen, Paul could have, right? You see those right there where the thrones or dominions, rulers, or authorities. Now, he could have zeroed in, and he could have said, for, for by him all things recreated, whether the trees, the ocean animals, climate change, or crazy diseases. Or whether the angels or demons, etc. And he would have been correct in saying so. But what does he do? He zeroes in on the very real items that these people would have been very familiar with. I mean, think about the context. They're in the midst of the Roman Empire, one of the greatest authority structures, not necessarily morally wise, but powerful wise, one of the greatest structures of authority of their day to have known history. And he says, even that, Christ is an authority over. 
He went after the very thing that he believed would put the nail in the coffin as to their waffling on whether or not Jesus was an authority, whether or not Jesus was the Lord. Today, I think Paul would say something like, for by him all things were created, whether the authority of the collective mob, whether the authority of a supreme court, FDA, or pagan presidents, or whether the authority of the authentic self, or the authority of your emotions, or whether the authority of the social movements and ideologies of your day. He would say, even those, Jesus is Lord over. All of it is his. He holds the ultimate throne. His dominion is all comprehensive. He is the alpha ruler, and he is the final authority. Not those things, church. Don't worry about those things. He's Lord over all of them. It's all of Christ is Lord over all of life. That's Paul's point. He picks the thing that if they were to say, yes, Jesus is Lord over everything, but I don't know about Caesar. Yes, even Caesar will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're, we've already said that his lordship, his rulership is representative. We also need to talk about his lordship as productive. His lordship is productive. We see this in verse 16 as well. Christ's lordship is productive. There at the end of verse 16, he says, all things were created through him. All things. It doesn't mean some things. All things were created through him. He's a creator of all. He created all of it. It was by him. He says it twice in just one verse. He's the agent of creation. He's the productive ruler. His rulership makes something. It goes somewhere. It changes things. It brings order out of chaos. It brings beauty out of ugliness. On heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authority, all of it created through him. Listen, he's more than just a dictator who, who sends out lofty words. It's an act of rulership where his words mean something and they change things. In verse 17, it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's like the divine glue that holds creation together. Christ continues to hold all things together. Again, his rulership is productive. It keeps order out of chaos. One Anglican theologian said, he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. Listen, you think it's chaotic now. It can get much worse. Pastor Doug Wilson says this, it's Christ or chaos. Those are the two options. It is Christ or chaos. In your household, it is Christ or chaos. In this church, it is Christ or chaos. In our government, it is Christ or chaos. We see chaos right now. Nothing has existence apart from Christ because it will not be held together. All things find their existence in Christ and all things find their continued existence because of Christ. Listen, you understand, this would have been a crazy concept for them as hearers at this moment. 
all things are held together, they would say, by a man who recently lived and had been crucified by the Romans? What? Listen, it's not an idea that holds people together. It's not a virtue that holds people together. It is a person whose name is Jesus, who actively rules in a productive fashion, holding the world, the universe together. No other religion. Paul is saying, no, it's Christ. It is Christ. Listen, we are tempted today as Christ's church to find the cohesion for our life and the other things that are going on from things like self-help books or religious routines or social theories and psychologies or medicine or sports or tribes and political tribes. Listen, Paul, Paul is going after a thing called syncretism at this moment where they're like, okay, Jesus is Lord. We got that, Paul. Uh, but Caesar's also Lord. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's all been created, and it's all under the authority of Jesus. He is unmatched by anybody, even Caesar. Those two things don't go together. There's a place for Caesar. It's not up there next to Jesus. There's a place for religious routines, medicines, and understandings, and science, and sports, but it is nowhere near the throne of Jesus. Only Christ holds it together. Christ is the one that holds everything together. He is the one that makes sense of everything in our lives. Even the hardest things. And if that's the case, that his lordship is representative, his lordship is productive, then that means that all of Christ for all of life, that all of life must respond to all of Christ's lordship. All of life must respond to all of life, all of Christ's lordship. Listen, lordship, I know this is a, is a, not a, uh, a popular term in our day, but lordship demands submission. Lordship demands submission. It requires following. Let's go back to that verse, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and what? For him. For him. That means they serve his purpose. All of it, even the bad, serves his purpose, all of creation must respond to all of Christ. It's created for him. That means your career, your business, whatever it is, is for Christ. It means your households, husbands, serve Christ. That means your emotions were created to serve Christ. All of it. None of them can compete with Christ's position. Here's the reality. Resistance to the Lordship of Jesus is inevitable. It's inevitable for you. It's inevitable for me. We see it all around us. It began in the garden. In our lives, 
self-government in our households, in our churches, in the world. Listen, the proper response to the resistance of Christ's lordship is to ask for faith from God and the grace to walk in repentance. The only hope for the insane world around us is faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the proper proclamation to a world in rebellion to Jesus' lordship, the proper proclamation to a world in rebellion to a self that is sometimes on Mondays in rebellion to Jesus' lordship, sometimes on Tuesday evenings in rebellion to Jesus' lordship, and so on, is a call to faith in Jesus, the Redeemer, and to walk in repentance. That's the way out of the hellish hole that each of us might find ourselves in on a daily basis. And that is the way out of the hellish hole around us. There is no other way. There is no bootstraps way. There is no join the right church way. There is no serve the poor way. You see, Jesus came to this earth, and in his life, he perfectly imaged, among many things, the productive and representative rulership of his Father. He fulfilled the law, means he lived it perfectly, which means he lived perfectly the image of God. The law shows us, not as well as Christ does, but the law shows us the image, a measure of the image of God, the character of God. Jesus comes and lives that. He fulfills that. Therefore, earning our righteousness. And then after he did that, he then takes on our unrighteousness and our failure to live and image God. He takes that and puts it on his back. Look at verse 19 and 20. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Right? So, see, the perfect image of God is right there in Jesus. Paul tells us once again, in case we missed it, three verses earlier. And then he said, verse 20, and through him, through the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, through him, to reconcile to himself all of life, all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how did he do so? By making peace. And how did he make peace? By the blood of the cross. He made peace the only way peace with God could be made, and that is a life for a life. His blood for our blood. His righteous blood becomes ours, and he takes on our unrighteous blood. It's only by repentance for our resistance and faith in Jesus' faithful life, sacrifice and resurrection, that we can be set free to trust and follow his lordship. And this, this is good news. Amen? This is good news. Because we've all resisted his lordship. Let's move on to a couple other quick points. 
It says that he is the head of the church. Now, this is important for our moment right now, for churches particularly. He's not just the head of the church. The point here is that he is also the head of the church. Let me me rephrase it again. He's not just Lord over his church, his bride. He's Lord over the entire earth. Also the church. Emphasis on the church. So many of us Christians live like he's just Lord over the church and the rest is without hope or the rest, it doesn't matter or the rest, who knows? We live after, it's like we're just waiting for Jesus to return and, and as long as I just kind of say some praises every once in a while, I'm good to go. No, Jesus cares about all of it because he's Lord over all of it. It was all created through him and it's all created for him. It's all, it all matters. Now, Paul moves from creation, right, this Lord over all of this, to new creation by identifying Christ as the firstborn among the dead. He will be the, he's the firstborn of the new creation, where everything is restored once and for all. Again, it's interesting that many Christians today live as though Jesus is Lord only over the new creation. So long as I just get by being a good person now and you know, even repentance of faith, nothing else really matters until the new creation. It's all going to burn anyways, right? But Paul begins with the lordship and the kingdom of Jesus now and how everything now also matters even as we look forward to new creation and what's coming. Christ's resurrection he tells us, is the source of new life for us. New life now, eternal life then. So the resurrection of the preeminent one is the source of life for the wretched, you and me. And his resurrection, listen church, his resurrection guarantees all the results of his lordship. His future kingdom, where we defeat death with him, but also his kingdom here and now, his lordship over it all. What an amazing thing. Christ the Lord. Listen, our culture of Christianity has produced a culture of Christians who don't live like Jesus is Lord, but more like he's a lowly kitchen maid. We don't live like he is Lord over it all. And so what happens? We oftentimes live defeated, wimpy, depressed, sad, passive lives. We live like Jesus has just been tossed to the side. Like he's a side thought in creation. We don't live like he's the point of creation. We don't cut our grass like he's the point of creation. We don't proclaim the news to our neighbor like he's the point of creation. We don't stand up to tyrannical governments like he's the point of creation and the Lord of creation. But if Jesus is Lord and we bear his image, then we are to bring the lordship of Jesus everywhere that we go. 
But that means we do so with a Lord that sits on a throne. With a Lord that is, has all the power. With a Lord that is the preeminent one. And is supreme over with no close second. As men, as we lead our families, and we lead in this world representing and, and, and showing the productive rulership of Jesus. As women, as you bring life and beauty to this ugliness around us. As we do these things together, we do so with a, with a Lord, with a Redeemer who sits on a throne that is active and that has all the power and all the means necessary. And his resurrection has secured the outcome. We reflect his lordship. All of life, for all of Christ, hence the name Christ the Lord. Listen, Jesus will one day emerge as the Lord and the point over all the cosmos. And you and I want to be on the right side of history when that happens. So where does it begin? It begins with self-governing, leading yourself in repentance and faith to enjoy being under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every moment, every day, all of life, to lead your household, whether it's just you or you have 10 kids, lead your family to enjoy being under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's your church, whatever church you're a part of now or will be in the future, be a part of and help a church enjoy the lordship of Jesus and pushing and encouraging the lordship of Jesus. And in the sphere that oftentimes seems outside of our control, even the government, hold the government to give an account to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that, that we mere mortals have been given by the blood of your son Jesus Christ new life. New life even now. Even in the midst of a dying world, a world that is broken with so much pain and truth suppression and hurt and terror, that we have new life and we have hope because our ruler is on a throne and not just a throne, but the throne. And he rules and reigns over all the earth. Father, help us to be a people who catch the vision. That catch the vision that we live. We've been saved to represent all of Christ in all of life. That we should represent Christ the Lord. And see his gracious merciful, just rulership. 
be a reality in ourselves, in our homes, in our church, in our communities, and in our government. And that we would believe and walk in the only way we can to do so. And that is repentance and faith. Help us, Father. Forgive us for resisting the lordship of your Son. And give us the grace to recognize the sweetness of the lordship of your Son, Jesus. Father, for your glory and our good and our joy in you, Father, make it so in this place. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.